This is an ABC podcast. March the 21st is the UN's International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Here in Australia, we call it Harmony Day. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and in this rear vision, we'll find out why. I do not accept that there is underlying racism in this country. I have always taken a more optimistic view of the character of the Australian people. This nation of ours has been able to absorb millions of people from different parts of the world over a period of now some 40 years. And we have done so with remarkable success and in a way that has brought enormous credit to this country. It's very important that we keep that in mind. Then Prime Minister John Howard, speaking after the Cronulla riots in Sydney in 2005. In this episode of Rear Vision, we'll look at the origins of multiculturalism in Australia and how we arrived at Harmony Day, being celebrated this week around the country. Migration to Australia, after the land was taken from its First Nations people, came largely from Britain. The so-called White Australia policy restricted non-Anglo immigration until after the Second World War, when Australia launched a massive immigration program. Populate or perish was the slogan. We needed workers. Between 1945 and 1965, two million immigrants arrived in Australia, many of them non-English speakers from Southern and Eastern Europe. They were expected to assimilate, to become just like us. Now, what happened in the late 1960s, second half of the 1960s, was that it was becoming more difficult to attract immigrants. I'm Andrew Marcus, and I'm an emeritus professor at Monash University. Australia was going further afield in terms of recruiting immigrants. For example, there was an agreement with Turkey. Now, that's something that wouldn't have been envisaged, you know, 15 years earlier. But to get the large numbers that were seen as desirable, it was necessary to go much further. And so I think in that context, people started to rethink whether assimilation was really the optimum policy for Australia. By then, a migrant underclass had developed and children were starting school without speaking English. In 1973, the newly elected Whitlam government passed the Racial Discrimination Act, making the use of racial criteria for any official purpose illegal. The idea of a multicultural society was promoted by Whitlam's Minister for Immigration, Al Grasby. Look, we are all migrants of either today, yesterday or the day before. Australia is a migrant country. It will always be so. So there's no point in saying, when did you come? Did you come before? Did the Reverend Alan Matheson, did his people arrive, you know, last year, the year before, the last generation? Look, we are all migrants from that first moment in in January the 26th, 1788. That's why on Australia Day next year, which I hope will be better, we won't be talking about the new Australians and the old Australians. We'll be talking about the family of the nation in which all have an equal part. Al Grasby, who was the minister at the time, gets a lot of credit because he's someone who, in one of the first public statements on multiculturalism, talks about the multicultural family, which is basically saying we have to acknowledge 
that Australian society has been changed by post-war immigration. We can no longer rely on those old slogans of we are 98% British. Cultural diversity is a reality in Australia and it's something to be celebrated, not to be feared. It's a positive. Hello, I'm Gwenda Tavan. I'm an adjunct associate professor in politics at La Trobe University. Multiculturalism in the 1970s is still very much focused on what policies and programs do we need to help new settlers integrate into Australian society, to actually genuinely be equal members of our society. We've got to remember from 1945 well into the 1970s, many of the immigrants that were coming were not high skilled like they are now. Many were low skilled and it was pretty soon evident that if you were of non-English speaking background and low skilled, you were more likely to suffer social inequality. So multiculturalism in an Australian context was very much originally about addressing the specific needs of immigrants as settlers. It was very much a practical response to the failures of post-war assimilation and integration to achieve equality, social equality for immigrants. What Whitlam's government had begun expanded under the next coalition government led by Malcolm Fraser. He commissioned the Galbally Report, a review of migrant services, which recommended, among other things, the setting up of SBS. It was the second key document in the whole multicultural exercise. Grasby's short paper in 73, Galbally in 1978. I'm Andrew Yakubovich. I'm Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Technology, Sydney. And what it did was it said, look, we have a multicultural society and everywhere we look, there are inequities, prejudice, exploitation, etc. But they said we can be better than we have been by being more aware of how we can be equal. And that's really what happened. They created a series of really important institutions, some of which still exist. So the special broadcasting service was going to be created. What had been a fairly ad hoc quasi-community radio stations were going to be professionalised. And the uh, excuse that Grasby had used to get them started, which was to introduce Medibank to the migrant population, could disappear into the background and become a full-on professional communication strategy. Then they would have multicultural TV and it would be spread across the country. It would use new satellite, et cetera, et cetera. You then have an effective welfare structure and the migrant stuff would interact with what was going to be a whole series of different changes to welfare. Local communities would be able to employ migrant workers, language workers, etc. There would be changes in education. There would be changes in childcare, particularly a big issue, providing effective childcare for kids in migrant families. And then you took at the other critical areas. We would create an institute, the Australian Institute for Multicultural Affairs, which would be a locus for research, monitoring the impact of, the, of all these policies and ensuring the collection of data so that we had a, a proper evidence base for policy, which we'd never had before. During Fraser's term as Prime Minister, more than 50,000 Vietnamese refugees were settled in Australia. His government expanded the family reunion program and more migrants began coming from Asia. Immigration policy has changed so that for a period it becomes easier to sponsor relatives 
and not just immediate family, but extended family. And some people criticize that. So, so this is a, a period of a significant change and then produces a reaction that the change has gone too far. So in the mid-1980s and even earlier, what described as the culture wars becomes quite prominent, that there's been too much of a concession made. For example, the education system and what is being taught to our children. From overseas, the influences are Margaret Thatcher in England, Ronald Reagan in the United States, and then that sort of what's described as the new right and their influence in Australia. And one of their targets is multiculturalism. And what is being argued is that multiculturalism, in terms of a famous historian, is creating a nation of tribes that instead of unifying Australia, which it would seem to be the objective of multiculturalism, is actually dividing Australia and it is embedding differences. According to Professor Geoffrey Blaney, who's one of Australia's foremost historians, the country's bringing in too many Asian immigrants to the point, he says, of exploding community tolerance. At a Rotary meeting in Warrnambool in Victoria over the weekend, Professor Blaney said Asians had been given such a powerful precedence in the immigration policy that the old white Australia policy had been turned inside out. In the last few years, the immigration from Southeast Asia has come on such a large scale that it's challenging the tolerance in those areas where many of those migrants are settling. In short, it's very difficult at a time of large-scale unemployment in a country to bring in people from a very different culture, to put them more in the areas of unemployment than anywhere else and expect uh, those people living in those areas to automatically tolerate them. We start to see in the 1980s debates about the purpose of immigration, about the purpose and the impact of multiculturalism, and, of course, about, you know, levels of age and immigration. Now, this is followed in 1988 by uh, the Fitzgerald Inquiry, another important inquiry into immigration and multiculturalism and Asian immigration. And that report, the CAPE report, finds that Australians are very confused about multiculturalism. They don't quite understand what it means. And a number of them are worried that it's actually a program that's been introduced by elites that reflects vested interests, the ethnic communities. There's a lot of talk about, you know, the ethnic lobby and its undue influence over government policy. We have to remember in the 80s, there are Labor governments in power. So Labor had historically been able to establish closer links with ethnic communities. People are worried that multiculturalism as a policy is encouraging reliance on ethnic division and difference rather than emphasising social cohesion. And this is a dilemma for the Hawke government because on the one hand it does have strong links. Australia continues to have a flourishing immigration program and there's still the reality of having to deal with new settlers and how we get them settled into the country. What we see in response to the Cape report and this continuing political controversy, you know, and we've had the Blaney debate, then John Howard comes out and makes comments about Asian immigration. What we get in response is the Hawke government's national agenda for a multicultural Australia. This is released in 1989. And the agenda is very interesting in terms of its marking a shift 
from that migrant settlement emphasis. It's moved away from an emphasis on migrant needs and migrant rights to cultural expression to this idea of multiculturalism as something that all Australians have access to. It's their right as Australian citizens to enjoy a limited amount of cultural freedom. And I say limited for a reason, because even though the national agenda talks about people's right, the freedom to enjoy their cultural diversity, all Australians' rights to do that, it also emphasises the rights and responsibilities of all Australians to adhere to Australian values and norms. In 1996, John Howard was elected to lead a coalition government after 12 years of Hawke Keating. Funding for multiculturalism would be removed from his first budget. Howard had run an election campaign that featured the slogan, for all of us, not just for some. Well, I think if we're looking at 96, because I think that's a, there were so many different things happening. People didn't like Keating and what he was projecting. There was a huge fear rising about Asian immigration, which was really starting to hit by then. You had Pauline Hanson, who'd been pre-selected for the Libs, and then uh, lost pre-selection but still ran, who was very, very influential in changing the tone. There was a lot of media about Asian street gangs, drugs, those sorts of things. So if you like, the early promise of a painless transition into a multicultural Australia seem not to have occurred. So whether multiculturalism per se was the issue or Asian migration was the issue or getting into bed with Asia which was the issue, which was sort of Keating's perspective on the world, it definitely turned a sufficient number of people into fearful of change. There had been Muslim migration, but 96 was not a Muslim election. It was an Asian Southeast Asian Indo-Chinese election. It wasn't a Chinese election. There was Vietnamese, Cambodians, like that was the, the fear image. You know, it was Cabramatta, it was the, the drug stuff, all of that sort of stuff. Howard was always very, very suspicious of multiculturalism. He saw it as promoting diversity at the expense of social cohesion. He refused to condemn Pauline Hanson when she made her anti-Asian immigration, anti-Indigenous Australian comments. Howard felt that the social progressive and, I guess you could say, left-wing critique of Australian racism and discrimination had been too negative. He felt that what Australians wanted to do was celebrate achievements rather than look at the more negative aspects of their past. And we can see something like that in this shift away from measures and initiatives to acknowledge that racial discrimination exists and should be combated to turning it into something that is celebratory of diversity, but in a very kind of limited, benign way. And then we see the decision to recast the UN's day celebrating the elimination of racial discrimination by something that was much more positive and optimistic in its emphasis, Harmony Days. And the emphasis there very much is on celebrating our multicultural success. You know, the fact that we've been able to bring many people, many groups from around the world 
and we enjoy one of the most harmonious societies in the world. We've done a good job in many ways. Now, that is very true. I think there are things to celebrate, but we're a long way from the original roots of multiculturalism, which had a very different emphasis. Different times, that is true, but in the context of a country that was continuing to bring a lot of people, and I think people sometimes forget this, that during the Howard era, you know, there was certainly a very hardline approach to refugees, asylum seekers, a suspicion of multiculturalism. It's a word that sort of drops out of favour. But immigration was continuing. In fact, it was continuing to increase quite dramatically. Bob Birrell runs the Australian Population Research Institute, a think tank focused on issues like population growth, immigration diversity and the economy. He says that Australia is the most successful multicultural nation, even now when what he calls soft multiculturalism prevails. Australia leads comparable countries in terms of the percentage of people born elsewhere. Yet, except for the fringe, anti-immigrant feeling has not been stirred up politically here as it has, say, in the UK. I think our version of multicultures has been very successful. In the first instance, during the Whitlam, Fraser, Hawke eras, it did help to rectify a basic problem in, in Australia, that is the treatment of Southern Eastern Europeans as a devalued underclass. And that has been a wonderful benefit from the point of view of those communities. They've achieved remarkable upward mobility in the second and third generation. Multiculturalism has helped Australia manage an unprecedented level of overseas migration, particularly from Asian communities or Asian origin, that has to be regarded as a major success. Where does Australia fit in terms of of the size of our immigration over the post-war period? Are we right at the top end in terms of immigration intake? Absolutely, we are the top. <laughs> no other developed country is anywhere near our proportion of overseas born, now about 30%, and certainly not um, in the case of de- de- developed countries with such a high share of Asian born migrants. So we are highly distinctive in that regard. But I think the main reason why this has been achieved without serious political discord is partly because of it. multiculturalism has been shorn of the hard element, but it's also derives from the extraordinary success of a, a country as a commodity exporter that we simply don't have the concentrated, deprived communities as in the rust belts of the United States and Europe and Britain, which has been the, the base for a lot of serious opposition to immigration as a whole and to globalisation. So we are quite distinctive as a nation. And I think the multicultural movement has been a very important contributor to that, although in its modified form since, since the Howard era. The Scanlon Foundation Research Institute maps social cohesion in Australia with annual surveys. Andrew Marcus. With the Scanlon Foundation surveys, we began to look at public opinion, and these are annual surveys, and we began to look at public opinion on multiculturalism. And the first time we ran it, this was in the Habit years, 
we found out about 80% of people thought that multiculturalism was good for Australia. And that was a big surprise because, you know, in surveys, you don't get numbers like 80 or 85 or 90% agreement on any issue. And what it did show is that in Australia, multiculturalism had become established as a very strong brand. And so any government that would formally abandon multiculturalism, not just passively not use the term, but actively to get out and say multiculturalism is finished, it's a failed policy. And by the way, that was what was happening in Europe. In Europe, there was a consensus in England, France, number of countries in the context of uh, terrorist attacks and the context of entrenched differences in those societies. And the argument in Europe is that multiculturalism is a failed project. We don't have that in Australia. What we have in Australia is a sense of great success. We see it benefiting Australia. But what people do not agree with, and that's another question that we've asked in the survey, is do you think that government should support immigrant communities to maintain their cultures and traditions? And whereas 80% or more agree that multiculturalism is good, only 35%, maybe 40% agree for government funding for cultural maintenance. Given this level of public support for multiculturalism, how is it experienced by migrants? My name is Christina Ho. I'm an associate professor at UTS in social and political sciences. I'm also a second generation Chinese Australian migrant and I research migration and diversity in Australia. Generally, I feel that multiculturalism has been a really positive thing about Australian society. Australians are generally very proud to describe the society as a multicultural society, and it is part of Australia's national identity, I would say, although obviously it is not the only thing that, that is used to define Australian identity. So there still always is a tension between people's acceptance and even pride about multiculturalism, but there's always an underlying sentiment that is, I guess, Anglo-centric, white-centric, and even racist. I mean, over the years, there's been a lot of research done on this, and there's a small strong portion of Australians that will openly admit to quite racist views. And I think for the majority of Australians, even though they may not subscribe to those kinds of views, there's an undercurrent of a kind of sense that there is an Anglo core to Australia's culture and multiculturalism sort of is layered on top of that. And so it's always something that is a little bit of a bonus kind of thing on top, as opposed to something that is really at the core of Australia's national identity. And so I guess in times of tension, that sort of underlying Anglo centrality comes to the fore. And luckily, we haven't had this happen in, you know, violent ways, as has happened in other countries. I think we'd have to look back to the Cronulla riots in Sydney, 2005, 2006, was it? You know, that was probably a time when it really came to the fore. And generally, we don't see that, but there's always an undercurrent of it. And we saw that most recently with COVID and the kind of discrimination that Asian Australians felt. So even on the streets, you know, even in multicultural suburbs, in places like Sydney and Melbourne, Asian Australians often reported feeling quite scared about facing discrimination 
and not necessarily in a in-your-face way, but sometimes just these under-the-breath comments that people make. People would say, you know, well, you brought the virus here or, you know, so this kind of avoidance that was happening in public. So, you know, multiculturalism is always a little bit precarious in Australia, despite the fact that the majority of Australians, when they're polled about it, always say that they very strongly support it. Australia's first federal racial vilification laws were introduced by the Keating government in 1995. After John Howard's election in 1996, the coalition government decided on a different approach, setting in train the process that would result in Harmony Day. What they said in return was, we will have an education program about racism, because we think if people know why racism is bad, they'll stop being racist. Howard wins the election, Ruddock becomes immigration minister, and they undertake research into Australians' attitudes to race and difference. It scares the pants off them. They discovered that racism was widely spread in the Australian community, that an anti-racism program would not work, that the fact that they had a, an international day recognising the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination, most people did not like that idea. And they researched deeply to find out what might work, what would allow the government to actually come up with a policy that might work. And they discovered that everyone was in favour of harmony. It didn't mean that you had to behave, it meant that the other people had to behave. So as long as everyone behaved harmoniously and didn't do stuff that made you feel upset, then that was fine. And the consultants they had, Eureka Research, which is now part of Ipsos, big multinational, said... We think the way forward is to emphasise harmony because everyone likes harmony. Even people who are racist, they have this four-point scale, right? Even people who are ultra-four-point racists think harmony is quite nice because that means they've won and everyone else is shutting up and they get on with their lives. So out of this came Harmony Day. Everywhere else in the world, it's the UN Day for the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. In Australia, it's about harmony. If you think about the difference between those two concepts, one is about eradicating racism, it's action-oriented. The other one is a feel-good concept. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it does then take the focus in a different direction. So it's to make us feel good that we're different and we can celebrate different costumes or food or, you know, customs. And sometimes in that kind of setting, it's actually difficult to talk about racism because, oh, racism is such a downer, right? It's so negative and we're here to celebrate. And that's always been the tension within Australian multiculturalism is that it has this celebratory, you know, very positive feel-good approach. And that's great, you know, because for migrants, especially new migrants, it can be very validating for people to say, you know, you're all welcome here and we love your traditions and we love your food and your dances and all that sort of thing. But it doesn't allow for easy conversations about, for example, police harassment. These things are difficult to raise when the setting is, oh, we're all celebrating together. We remain, pandemic years aside, a high immigrant society, a settler society, that will has to constantly, I think, engage with this issue of new settlers. And we have the other important task of reconciling those forces, you know, people coming into a settler society, with how we then reconcile that with the Indigenous 
owners of this land and how we bring those two together. I think there's been a tension there all along. So there's unfinished business where multiculturalism is concerned, as there is with Indigenous rights. So this idea that we shouldn't be talking about it, that we don't need to talk about it, seems to me a bit self-defeating. The work of a society and a culture is never done. We've still got unfinished historical business. So these conversations about how we integrate people and how we reconcile past, present and future are still very important. Gwenda Tavan. My other guests were Bob Birrell, Andrew Marcus, Andrew Yakubovich, and Christina Ho. You'll find their details on the Rear Vision website. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Russell Stapleton for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.